Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Human Enhancement Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. If you know anything about biohacking or performance fitness, or have heard of a crazy biohacker injecting stem cells into his penis, you might have heard of Ben Greenfield, who is one of the most notable biohackers, has one of the top podcasts in health and wellness, and, and has interesting efforts going on with supplements and performance and coaching. Also, you know, a, a professional athlete, particularly well-known in the triathlete, triathletes and, and obstacle racing. So happy to have Ben on this program. Well, I'm glad you said penis first instead of me. <laughs> Good icebreaker. Hey, I mean, I think, you know, if you've been following something in, in the media, I think that's been uh, one of the top headlines recently in, in biohackers doing sort of crazy things. I mean, I, we might as well just go dive right into that. So uh, you know, my context for that journey was that you were, you know, writing a series for Men's Health and uh, we're trying a bunch of things for male enhancement, male performance. Yeah, it was an article called called New Year, New Dick, where they wanted to see what would happen if, if uh, a gentleman did just about everything possible in, I guess, what could be considered kind of like biohacking terms to uh, enhance the health of his dick. You know, there was more than just like modern stuff. Like the... They had me doing a lot of Ayurvedic principles too, you know, like uh, things you'll read about in like multi-orgasmic man or, or a way of the superior man, uh, things like reverse orgasm and, you know, no ejaculation, you know, so, some of those tactics. But the more, I guess, the, the sexy, interesting stuff for your audience did indeed involve uh, stem cell injections into my penis, uh, along with PRP and acoustic sound wave therapy, digital digital pump, like a, a digital penis pump. That was an interesting one, um, which is actually gold standard. You're supposed to, if you do like a platelet rich plasma injection and acoustic sound wave therapy, it assists with the growth of the new blood vessels. If you use a pump right. for like 30 days, they just give me the Cadillac pumps, the digital one, which is like a hands-free pump. And I found out it's not really hands-free because when you use it, uh, and you turn it on, like it'll it'll gradually go up to whatever. Let's say let's say 30 millimeters of mercury. Problem is, if you don't pay attention, I found this out the the bad way, is that it'll suck your balls in, and <laughs> that's really uncomfortable. Uh, if anyone has never had their balls just uh, instantly and and surprisingly subjected to about 30 <laughs> millimeters of mercury, hard's like hell. It's a, it's actually sitting at my desk, you know. With, with my pump on, as you do, uh, typing away in my computer, and and all of a sudden it was just like, and it got sucked in there. And I looked down, you know, my balls in there. Make sure it's still intact. Yeah. It's turning purple, and I'm like struggling to get the get the pump off, and, <laughs> and wondering if I've just uh, if I've just uh, lost the ability to make children or not. But yeah, it was that. And uh, what else did we do? We did all all the like you know the the gas station dick pills. Yeah. Um, you know, which were pretty scary, you know, just basically uh, sildenafil and ephedra and caffeine and had none of the none of the sexy herbs that they actually advertised right. that were in it were actually in so it. So basically off-label Viagra yeah. that you're yeah, not supposed yeah, to sell at gas know. stations. Exactly, yeah. yeah, that's essentially what it is. It's off-label Viagra yeah, with, without any of the, the super expensive supplements and herbs purportedly right. in those compounds. Obviously, uh, N equals one, you know, for the listeners out there, do at your own risk and do your own homework. But uh, I'm curious in terms of the measurable outcomes. I mean, what was the best? What was the worst? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, up until that point that I've been writing the article, I'd, I'd done the acoustic sound wave therapy before. 
And it actually, it, it does work pretty well. I mean, they, they, they blast it. It's called an extracorporeal shockwave therapy. They, they blast you. They do this for both men and women. They blast you with a sound wave frequencies for about 20 minutes, and it supposedly breaks open old blood vessels and causes antiosis and, and builds new blood vessels. And um, that, that actually works for me the first time I did it and the second time I did it, and then I did it again for this article. And I'm actually... I'm going down to Miami to for on some business and to speak at a regenerative medicine conference uh, tomorrow. Hmm. I'm going to do it again down there because you just get you get these amazing erections and mind blowing orgasms for like a good solid month huh. after you get this therapy. But uh, you feel like it, I, that it, that effect attenuates after the month. Yeah, it attenuates after about a month okay. or so. Um, the stem cells though, like I'm, I, I had that done three months ago and I, and I still have the effects of that. I don't know if the effects of that ever go away. Like I, I think it's like permanent growth, uh, with that in terms of, you know, measurable, you use the word pun intended yeah. results It did make my dick bigger and, um, also increase the quality of sex and the quality of orgasm. But I'd say as far as like expense, like that's an expensive procedure. Like yeah. by the time you've drawn out your own stem cells, grown them using a, it's, it's like a collagenous enzyme that they use to break down the fat marrow that right. they take out of you and concentrate the stem cells. And it's an expensive procedure. I mean, it's like all said and done, that's five to 10,000 bucks. I think to do like the acoustic sound wave therapy is a lot less. I want right. to say it's like, could be under a thousand. Yeah. Um, so so, so I, yeah, I would say bang for the buck. That was a little better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, so how do you explain to the skeptics out there that, you know, you're just Jamming stem cells, are they going to the right places? I mean, it sounds like if you actually see a quantifiable difference, you know, the results speak for themselves. But I'm curious, going deeper into mechanisms, you know, just throwing stem cells randomly into places doesn't typically work. So what do you think was the difference here? Oh, sure it works. Yeah. I mean, it works in joints. And systemically, that that's where we don't have any old men and old women walking around who have done systemic cells, stem cell injections right. and actually shown a decreased uh, telomere shortening rate right. or markedly improved lifespan, right? This right. is all kind of theoretical, you know, blood of young mice injected into uh, old mice type of thinking. You know, right. it's, it's kind of a philosophy that if you inject stem cells systemically into the bloodstream, you will actually, you know, basically what stem cell scientists will say is that they will travel anywhere in the body. They will differentiate into the tissue that your body needs most healing injuries where your body would need it, you know, decreasing inflammation where the body might need it, et cetera. Right. I don't know if that's true. I'm, I'm actually waiting to get the results back from Tello years. They emailed me last week telling me my results are going to be ready this week. So it should be ready really soon. And that'll be my actual first quantitative analysis versus, you know, I, I felt amazing qualitatively since right. I did the stem cell injection systemically. But as far as what's going off my telomere length, I won't know for a, for a little bit what's actually happening from a telomere standpoint. Right. Um, from a joint standpoint, I you know, like I, I got my back, uh, my hips, and and my penis injected. Every single area that I've had injected, I've gotten the result that I was looking for. Penis, better sex, uh, bigger size, better orgasms. Um, completely healed up a ton of QL and multifidus tears I had going up and down my spine. Yeah. Healed up my upper hamstring injury. Like like I'm. I'm running now. I'm training. I'm ready for race season. I mean, it it, it just worked. Yeah. So, what's the regulatory um, status on this? Because I think that's an interesting question, right? This is not the everyday yeah. Joe can't 
go to their doctor and say, hey, I'm interested in this thing. Can you can you prescribe it to me? Can I get my insurance to yeah. pay for it? Yeah. Har- yeah. Harvesting, totally legal. You know, I've, I've harvested down right. there where you're at in uh, uh, in Berkeley. I've gone to Forever Labs okay. and done the, done right. the bone marrow crunch. Right. And I've, I've collected my bone marrow, concentrated the stem cells, and I have that stored. Yeah. Um, and that would be... What they say about bone marrow is that actually supposedly works better if you're just going for the anti-aging type of effect. And those would be cells that you would, for example, re-inject every two years or every five years or however often that you want right. to inject the, you know, in my case, the, the 34-year-old me into the, the 50 or the 60 or the 70-year-old me. Right. Um, with, the, uh, with, with the U.S. stem cell clinic, which is where I had the fat marrow extracted, yeah, they got like... Yeah, raided by the FDA, I think. Actually, it was like two days after I was there in their clinic. And um, so I made it out just in time. <laughs> Any, anyways, though, uh, I, I think they got raided because uh, their storage procedures were frowned upon or, or something along those lines. Right. My, my experience with them has been nothing but positive. However, from a legality standpoint, having them extracted have them stored. That's all completely legal. Yes. Um, having them injected, from what I understand, for specific medical reasons into specific joints uh, is also legal, at least as far as the mesenchymal stem cells right. derived from fat. But likely you can't make medical claims on them. You can't make therapeutic claims on that. Right. But right. like if it's for you know wellness or enhancements right. or right. A, a personal right. responsibility, one can sort of you know, yep. do that as a biohacker will uh, sort of exactly. Engage. Yeah. And the only, the only thing I, th- I think might be beyond the bounds of legality for a medical practitioner to do would be the intravenous injection. Hmm. That's the one that, that I think the legality is questionable on. What I did was I just, I injected it myself using a push IV into the cubital vein of my left arm. And, and, and that, that's not that hard to do, especially in a, in a skinny ass Venus guy like me, you know, you just, find the vein and give yourself a push IV right that I I'm not sure would have been legal for a physician to do uh but but again even that the research seems to go back and forth but I can tell you that I mean that you know a lot of these like Cayman Islands Panamanian companies that are saying you got to go out of the country you know and, and pay the book of bucks to go get it done out of the country I don't think that's true. I, I think there's a little bit of financial motivation behind those claims. Yeah. At least at, at, at this point. There's also something that intrigues me right now. I've been looking into called exosome therapy. Exosomes apparently act very, very similar to stem cells and can be used in uh, in hair, facial tissue, skin, joints. They also use them, for example, like in uh, in cerebrospinal fluid. But that's a very interesting procedure as well. Guy in uh, uh, Salt Lake City, Dr. Harry Adelson, who apparently does a full body uh, exosomal procedure. Huh. Uh, Can you describe what exosomes are? Uh, I'm actually not not <laughs> quite sure. They, they, they're, okay. they're apparently stem cells uh, or, or stem cell-like compounds. Hmm. I'm, I'm still studying them. You, you're, you're catching me at the point where, I, where it's something I'm, it's, it's fresh in my mind, something yeah. I just found out that I'm, yeah. that I'm looking into when I say just found out like two days ago. Uh, but apparently they work very similar to stem cells. They are not something that you need to extract from your own body. They can be grown. Apparently they differentiate very similarly to stem cells into cells that your body would need. And this, this guy does what is called a, a full body makeover with exosomes. It's like a 30 K procedure and you go in there and they just do your entire body with exosomes. So I'm actually going to go, go do that and write a story on it in, in, uh, May. 
there's like this this full body exosomal treatment but apparently it's it's just it's like literally getting stem cells injected yeah. in, into every joint of your body that sounds so. like a fun n equals one and we'd love to hear that story i'm curious in terms of where the cutting edge is right i think us is known to be the cutting edge i think we, we see a lot of the a lot of the cutting edge stem cell therapies are being done in china where the ethics the regulations are more aggressive in terms of allowing for experimentation i'm curious your thoughts in terms of right. if we don't allow people to experiment or don't loosen some of the constraints are we gonna lose the jump on other countries what are your thoughts i guess i never really thought that much about losing the jump on because you're countries. pretty you're pretty much do, you know at, at the forefront of doing exosomal therapy you know injecting stem cells you're already at the at the front right so i guess from your perspective you're like hey you're the you're the initial guinea pig well, it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of barriers to entry that I've found personally, just just as, you know, a guy who's always kind of taken my medical care into my own hands, yeah. being able to to get access to whatever extraction of stem cells or reinjection of stem cells, et cetera. I guess on a mass market scale, it, the like you mentioned, the legality could be questionable. And, and you know, there's certainly you know, it seems like there's kind of like this battle to. Uh, to regulate it, you know, in the same right. way as, as there's this battle to regulate uh, whatever, like, you know, CBD or or Kratom. You know, I'm, I'm a total libertarian, right? Like, I'm I'm of the belief that, well, let, let me use just a very frank personal example, right? Like, let's say I were to do, like, a full-body exosomal therapy, and I were to die, right? Let's say I were to die a horrible death, and I were to, like, bleed out from the inside with little alien babies popping out of my gut, right? For for me, like, that, as a, as a libertarian, I'm like, Great. That that just did a lot more to stop people from doing something that could potentially be dangerous to their bodies than like forcing it to be illegal will ever do. Right. right. Like it's like if a restaurant kills somebody with some kind of nasty salmonella in their hamburger meat, not a lot of people are going to eat at that restaurant. We don't need the feds to jump in and tell that restaurant to shut down business. People like the dumb people that continue to go there are going to die yeah. and that will self-regulate. Right. So, and, then you, and you take full responsibility. If you kind of killed yourself, it's like, yep, I'm a dumbass. Oops. Right. But like, it's my right. right. It's my responsibility to educate myself and make that decision. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, my wife wouldn't go sue the doctor because she just, she knows like our, our philosophy is, is such that like, we're not, we're a lot litigious. We just we 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 take we take ownership for our own mistakes. Yeah, know? I mean, I think that's something fundamentally American about that. You know, having the responsibility, exploration, to, you know, push the edges, and you know, I mean, I think there's of yeah. course that line where like, yeah, don't let people do too stupid things that can affect other people's livelihoods, right? I think that's where I think regulation starts making more sense. But I, I, I'm I'm with you in the sense that you know, in general, I think people should have the responsibility educate themselves and be able to make choices yeah yeah, yeah. exactly i mean we could we, we go far down that yeah. rabbit hole yeah and yeah. I, I wanted yeah. to zoom out a little bit i mean i think how did you become ben greenfield at, at, you know doing these crazy stunts at the, at the at the forefront i mean you started off more on the i, I presume on the athletics nutrition side where did that ascent or descent you know whatever direction you want to take it uh start yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I didn't give a shit about the science of most of this stuff. I really was just in the performance game to be a good athlete. You know, I played high school tennis and uh, wound up playing college tennis and uh, water polo and men's volleyball and, and did bodybuilding and, 
you know, managed the wellness program at University of Idaho. And it was just like, I was, I was, I was really just like a Renaissance man of fitness from yeah. about the age of 15. But I really was, you know, just very, very into the fit part of it, not really into the health part of it, meaning I wasn't tracking biomarkers and blood. I wasn't doing any form of self quantification. I wasn't even training that intelligently. You know, I talk about in my book, you know, kind of two different pathways to induce mitochondrial density or endurance, which, um, you know, has, has been probably the, as you mentioned, like the focus of a lot of my sporting career. You know, you have your, your amp K pathway and your, uh, PGC one alpha pathway, you know, it's, it's kind of like two different pathways to, to get yourself into a state of endurance and, you know, the, uh, the former being a little bit more of the traditional endurance athlete, you know, just like train your ass off for copious amounts of time in an aerobic zone type of approach. The other being more kind of like high intensity interval training, power training type of approach. You know, it wasn't even until later in my sporting career when I realized, hey, you know, by combining low level physical activity like I'm doing right now, you know, talking to you, uh, walking on the treadmill, you know, fooling my body into, into hunter gatherer gardener esque mode you know, taking breaks throughout the day right before we got on the call, you know, after I'd finished another call and, and it had finished my breakfast, I did a hundred kettlebell swings, right? right. And, and I'll just drop in and do little things like that throughout the day. And then just a very brief high intensity interval training session, you know, like I did this morning, it was 10, 30 second sprints on the bike with 30 seconds recovery using a, a hypoxic training unit. But that kind of like intelligent training or self quantification wasn't really anything I did. I just like, you know, train like an animal, you know, you just throw as many training noodles at the wall as you can and see what sticks. And right. so for me, yeah, it started with being an athlete and, and I wound up as one does when they're a student athlete, declaring myself as a, as an exercise science major, just cause most of the, most of the jocks and the athletes, we just wanted to kind of like stick around exercise. So I studied exercise science, but I actually developed a real love for science. I'd never been that interested in science, really. I was, I was more of a, you know, I was really into, into English and into writing and, uh, you know, what was probably someone you would define as a very, you would define as a very kind of like right brained, uh, creative type of person, you know, all through, all through high school, you know, I did a lot of acting, a lot of writing, a lot of music. Um, but in college I really did fall in love with science enough. So to the point where I even, uh, you know, I, I went full pre-med. I took the MCATs. I got accepted to a bunch of medical schools. I, I got a master's degree. I wound up getting a master's degree in, in exercise science and biomechanics uh, and, and took a lot of human nutrition and pharmacology courses during that time because I, I found a real, real interest in, you know, things like the supplement industry and the supplement world. Right. Uh, and that was probably because I was I was getting into bodybuilding and just trying to, you know, figure out ways that one could put massive amounts of muscle on the human body. So I was studying creatine and nitric oxide and you know, a lot of these performance type of supplements. You know, I, I, I didn't wind up going to any of the medical schools uh, that I was looking at. And I instead kind of jumped back into the fitness industry, um, wound up opening a series of personal training studios and gyms in Washington State and Idaho, where I took my my love for for science and for biomechanics and for physiology and you know, outfitted all my all my places with high speed video cameras for biomechanical analysis of running and, and cycling. Right. You know, we we also did that that for swimming at local pools. So you're interested pools. on the performance side rather than the, the therapeutic side, I guess. You went through the medical school path. You would have been. Yeah. I was yeah, curious exactly. to dive into that a little bit. I mean. Yeah, I wanted to focus more on on working with healthy people, on right. on kind of sticking around the exercise and the fitness sector, and 
I, I had a real, real passion for it. And, um, I was good at it, right? Like I, I was like, I was good at, at, at teaching people fitness. And, and at that point was kind of merging from bodybuilding into Ironman triathlon and just kind of loved being around that whole scene. You know, we were doing indirect calorimetry. We were doing VO2 max tests, platelet rich plasma injections, uh, EKG of course, you know, training, but with a real bent on functional fitness and using science to get the, yeah. get the minimum effective dose of exercise. Um, That's what we realize as well. The triathlete Ironman population is some of the smartest athletes because they tend to yeah. be older. They tend to be a little bit more, have a little bit more resources to you know invest into technologies and biometrics. And then I right. think they just right. you know you know if you have a career and you want are yeah. competitive, it's like how do I max out the amount of gain the minimal amount of time, right? Yeah, they're all divorced and lonely. So. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, though. So I, I did that for, for a long time and a few of the local physicians who would send their patients to me, they nominated me to be personal trainer of the year through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And once I was, I was named as the personal trainer of the year, I started to get a lot more requests to like speak at conferences and, and, and to write and to freelance and do a lot of the things that I do now. So I eventually wound up kind of pivoting from the brick and mortar fitness industry into, you know, new media, into podcasting, into videos, into writing, and kind of continued exploring the, the edges and the boundaries of nutrition and fitness, you know, not just how can you get the minimum effective exercise dose by utilizing things like high intensity interval training or power training, or even training according to your genetics. Right. Uh, but also how, how could you, uh, for example, maximize performance in an Ironman triathlon by looking at forms of fuel that might be alternatives to things like maltodextrin and fructose, or how could you, uh, you know, take recovery beyond like inversion and cold and uh, look at other things, you know, like like electricity, like EMS or pulse electromagnetic field therapy. And yeah. how could you go beyond like having your own personal mantra and look at other ways to motivate oneself? You know, and I began to look at research, you know, by guys like, you know, Samuel Marcora on, um, you know, on, on pre-priming the body before exercise with things right. like transdirect cranial stimulation or other things that, that would somehow upregulate motor neurons. Um, you know, and, and you just start to look at all these different ways that you could enhance the human body. And, you know, and that's what I do now is I kind of use my own body as a playground to, to mess around with this stuff and to test it and, and to try it. And then I, I write about it. I, I program it for my athletes. I use a lot of this stuff still in my own training because I'm still racing professionally. And, right. and uh, yeah, for sure, that's kind of like how I, how I came to came to be interested in a lot of this stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like an awesome sweet spot where you know, the passion, the business, like, you know, the paying the bills all, you know, really synergize super well together. I'm curious. I mean, I think one of the things that we actually share a lot of interest, shared interest in, in is ketosis. And it sounds like this is a field that has been gaining more and more traction in science. I think a lot of people are talking about intermittent fasting, you know, celebrities like, you know, Terry Crews is quite vocal on intermittent fasting. Curious as you're looking at, you know, things like TCDS, some of the, you know, cognitive training mechanisms. I'm curious on, on the nutrition side, the ketosis side, you know, what have you looked at there? Uh, you know, how has that informed your training uh, protocols? I, I noticed you mentioned, you know, in terms of fueling, for example, dextrose, maltodextrin, those are essentially different forms of carbohydrate. Um, yeah. And if one is looking to be more keto adapted or, or, or use fat or ketones as fuels, one probably should, you know, needs to be smarter on how to best fuel. Curious how you think about the broad space of ketosis and things that you've seen that work really well and, and not so well in, in, in different types of fueling. 
Dude, I I feel old when I say this, but I was I was using you know a, a ketogenic approach to fueling uh, specifically endurance performance eight years ago. You know, before anybody was really talking about ketosis, and the, there were no exogenous ketones, right? You just you did long fasted workouts. Um, you restricted carbohydrates during training. I would use how'd you how'd you, like, how'd you get aware of the space? Did you read like Finney Volek's book or or, or, or I, mean, I was curious. Uh, I think my first first interest in that, you know, I, I want to say the the approach was was mentioned at one of the Ironman sports medicine conferences. This would have been like probably 2012, something like that. I used to go down there and speak at that conference in Kona. And of course, you can drop from Gatorade Sports Science Institute was always there, you know, talking about these things like upregulating uh, glucose transport by combining things like, you know, fructose and, and maltodextrin. Right. And um, at the same time, I was I was very interested in alternative approaches. Um, a, just because I like I mentioned, I love to explore a lot of the a lot of the other options that are out there. And B, um, I was having increasingly kind of like concerning issues with everything from uh, blood sugar. My hemoglobin A1C was going through the roof. So you're just uh, pounding basically sugar. We're pounding like goose I, shots. I'd go, or, through, a typical, I'd go yeah. through a typical race and take at least 40 of the you know normal gels. But it's about 100 <laughs> calories. You know, some maltodextrin. You'd lay awake. You'd, you'd think you'd sleep after crushing yourself and going to hell and back for about 9 or 10 hours during an Ironman triathlon. Like but, 500 grams of sugar, basically. Oh, with caffeine. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, everything else they... they they put into gels, yeah. you know, as, as performance aids, you know, so taurine, caffeine, central nervous system stimulants, flavors, sugar, et cetera. And so I would just like lay awake at night and I, I got to the point where I would just like have to take two or three Valium after racing an Ironman triathlon in order to sleep. Like it, it was pretty bad. And my gut was getting flipped. Like I would finish races and just like have gut rot for days from uh, due to the fact that, that essentially you're eating an extremely high FODMAP diet and combining that with the enormous increase in gut permeability that occurs right. during exercise and especially during endurance exercise in the heat. Right. So, you know, ideal. And then, of course, you're, you're also uh, generating a lot of free radicals um, by relying upon glucose as right. the primary energy source. So I was becoming increasingly aware of these issues and I believe it was somebody at that, that Ironman Sports Medicine Conference. I don't remember the exact context, but there, there was kind of like talk about, you know, trying to consume fewer carbohydrates during exercise or, you know, trying like, you know, more protein and less carbs or more fat and less carbs. So I just started experimenting. Um, one of the first things I started experimenting was just using a lot of amino acids, fewer carbohydrates. And in this case, it was branched chain amino acids. You know, I was talking a lot with uh, Peter Atia, and he was recommending to me, I think it was BioSteel was the brand he recommended. Hmm. Um, but uh, we, we were just, we, he and I were looking at ways, uh, just on, on phone calls together, to, to uh, help me get through Ironman triathlons while eating fewer carbohydrates. So I wound up using a lot of branched chain amino acids, which I eventually replaced with essential amino acids. Um, I would blend those in a blender with uh, coconut oil with uh, you can super starch. I was using like this slow release starch that was right, original low glycemic index. Uh, yeah, yeah, very low glycemic index starch that just also flips the gut. That does not digest well, mm -hmm. at least for me. It, it results yeah. in a lot of kind of like um, 
gas and, and gut and bloating issues. Uh, and then electrolytes, you know, as I, I found this out, uh, just from personal experience before I found the research on it, you know, that, you know, when you're, when you're consuming lower carbohydrates, you, you do dump a lot of sodium and dump a lot of electrolytes. So your electrolyte needs go up, right. but I was basically on electrolytes, amino acids, uh, oils, specifically coconut oil, you can superstar. So I eventually, uh, replaced the, uh, the, you can, with more like a, a potato based kind of dextrose fuel. I was using something from Millennium Sports at the time, but I found that the, like a dextrin based fuel seemed to actually digest a lot better than like a UCAN super starch. I found that essential amino acids seems to work, seem to work a lot better than branch chain amino acids. Mm-hmm. Um, coconut oil seemed to work pretty well. And then eventually I met Dave Asprey and replaced the coconut oil with MCT oil and eventually replaced that with C8 based on Capilic some acid. of his recommendations. Yeah. I might talk with him. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and kept the electrolytes as kind of like part of the formula that I would use when racing. Um, and then when I'd go in, into the run portion of the race, a lot of times that particular mixture, which was in water bottles, wasn't logistically that manageable to carry. So I would simply switch to more of a fat based energy gel or like a chia seed based gel or an almond butter based gel or something that was not, uh, fructose and maltodextrin based gel. Um, even hammer gel, I think had like some that were kind of sort of fatty, like they had like a peanut butter flavor or stuff like that. So I'd, so I'd use that stuff a little bit more. Um, and, uh, that, that, w- that was my initial kind of foray into, in experimenting with ketosis. And I, I found it, uh, to, to be an increasingly effective, you know, the longer I stayed on that diet, the more and more I, I've, I felt, I felt good on it, you know, yeah. cause obviously I was becoming very fat adapted. Right. But so this uh, is leaking the, through your daily diet as well. So like, I mean, it wasn't just yeah, exactly. your fueling so now routine. I'm beginning to restrict carbohydrates. And, right. and I had a little bit of experience with low carbohydrate diet because you know, as a bodybuilder, I was eating high, high protein, right. low fat, low carb, right? Just like tuna fish out of the can and, you know, hot dog, just like straight out of the package and, you know, just, just tons, copious yeah. amounts of protein. So I was used to, to carbohydrate restriction. Uh, from a from a pretty you know from the time of about 19 years old you know i i'd been kind of like eating a lower carbohydrate diet and then i got into endurance sports and there were about five years of endurance sports where i swallowed hook line and sinker the whole endurance sports fueling recommendations that are quite popular you know about 50 to 60 percent carbohydrate with a gradual carbohydrate load so getting up to 80 to 90 percent carbohydrate by the time you get to race day and then um when the ketones came around, I guess this would have been probably about three or four years ago when I found that you could you could either amp up the effectiveness of that fuel or you could replace some of like the oils, right? Like a like a caprylic acid or or an MCT or coconut oil that you might have in that blend with ketones. And I found those to offer an even greater advantage right. um, when, when it came to, to really maximizing the effectiveness. And, you know, I was just using, you know, basic blood ketone measurements and, you know, was finding that when I was able to maintain ketone levels above three millimolar, I, I performed like a champion, you know, yeah. when, I, when I would go out on, on my longer workouts. And yeah. I don't do a lot of ultra endurance anymore. You know, now I use ketones um, just as much for, for day-to-day fuel as I do for for workouts. But, um, yeah, I mean, like anything I've discovered, it's just been a matter of constant experimentation and kind of seeing what works and what doesn't. But I mean, now if you're to drop me into an Ironman triathlon, yeah, I mean, I'd be using, uh, essential amino acids. I'd be using electrolytes. I'd be using, uh, trace amounts of some form of like a dextrose based, uh, carbohydrate fuel, you right. know, probably about 
100 calories an hour or so. So you get a little bit of a slow bleed for any glycolytic efforts that might yep. occur. You still during... need glucose for anaerobic exercise. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and then uh, uh, ketones. And uh, I actually still like just because, you know, as, as you know, uh, medium chain triglycerides can upregulate the production of ketones in the liver. So yeah. I still like to combine or, or include some form of a medium chain triglyceride into that fueling mix. But um, yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty good scenario. Yeah, no, so, I mean, it's especially interesting because I, and I think that is right in some of the PK studies looking at if one takes exogenous ketones, that's the, the straight delivery ketones into your blood. But as MCTs metabolize in the liver to BHB, you just have a more smoother or longer elevation of ketones. So I think you can get sort of the yeah. best of both worlds by stacking exogenous ketones with uh, MCTs, which again are sort of a, a pre-substrate right. to BHB. Yeah. yeah, and I raced a tough meter in Vegas last year. And for that, I actually used a ketone ester and a glucose maltodextrin blend just to see what would happen if you yeah. just like, you know, went, went full on with, with the best uh, ketone delivery mechanism and the best carbohydrate delivery mechanism. And that actually gave me some some really really good <laughs> performance as well. Yeah. Um, if I would have had my hands on, on more of like a dextrose based fuel, I would have preferred to mix like a dextrose with the with a ketone ester. But yeah, simultaneously elevated levels of blood glucose and ketones for performance is is a it's a it's a pretty powerful combination as yeah. well. Yeah. And that's actually you know talking about ketone esters as as you know we were are developing uh, you know one of the first ketone ester drinks and that's what for their Oxford partner has been showing that they get the really really big boost of performance. It's stacking carbohydrate with ketones at the same time. Right. Yeah. So you get like yeah. dual fuel sources and you get the anaerobic advantage and the aerobic advantage at the same time. So, yeah, it's an exciting field as I think we're just seeing how to best optimally fuel. And I think now we have ketones as like a fourth lever or a fourth macronutrient that you can use, yeah. you know, in, in yeah. mix with fat, in mix with uh, protein, amino acids, in mix with carbohydrates. One thing I actually was curious about was that to get your thoughts on exercise or routines for performance and exercise or routines for longevity. I mean, I think there's like, a, a, you know, a bit of discussion around, you know, are those antithetical goals? I mean, I think to, to, to most people, most people are overweight, obese. So getting any exercise is better for both performance and longevity. But if you're at, uh, you know, sort of at the peak level, how do you think about that? Are you, are you training for performance or training for longevity? You, you, you switch it up. Uh, do you sometimes see it as antithetical? Oh, it's certainly antithetical. You know, I've taken... I've, I've put a lot of, of, of hurt on my body and induced a lot of inflammatory related damage, yeah. uh, along with just, uh, depletion, constant activation of mTOR from face stuffing with calories to support the copious amounts of endurance exercise. You know, right. there, there's a lot that I've done that has flown in the face of longevity. Although now I would say my training program has allowed me to strike a sweet spot between, uh, longevity and performance. But Yes, there, I mean, there is no need to exercise in the way that we Americans would understand exercise to live a long time. If you look at the, you know, the Venn diagram of a lot of these blue zones, right, we don't really see exercise or stepping into a CrossFit gym or, you know, taking a Zumba class or whatever as a core component of the lifestyles of a lot of these centenarians, right? You see lack of smoking, you see high legume intake, you see high wild plant intake, you see um, lots of time with family uh, spent in love and life and relationships, and you see time outdoors, right? Like those are 
those are some of the prevailing characteristics. And even when you look at the physical activity, it's low level physical activity all day long. My wife's program is, is probably one of the best examples I could give you of a longevity based program, right? She spends a lot of time outside, whether it's in the cold or the extreme heat, uh, chopping wood, moving wheelbarrows, gardening, taking care of the goats and the chickens. There's like a microbiome effect. Um, she goes on hikes a couple of times a week. She takes the dog walking. She plays tennis with uh, some of her female friends a couple of times a week. And and then she also, you know, she'll be lifting rocks, moving rocks, uh, doing manual labor. Uh, she'll, she'll paint. Like she's just moving around all day long, but she's not actually thinking about exercising. She's just like, you know, moving. Her lifestyle's and, movement, uh, yeah. Right, exactly. That that's an example of a, of a good exercise program conducive to longevity. If you were going to try to hack that because you couldn't work outside all day long like she does, you would uh, do things like I'm doing right now, right? Like low level physical activity all day long. Every time I take a break in between calls or consults, I'll go, you know, grab a kettlebell and do a few swings, lift a couple of heavy things, hang from the pull up bar or you know, do a few muscle ups or, you know, even like a few body weight squats or whatever. Um, do like I did this morning and sweat for a little while in the sauna, then go jump in the pool. You, you're just basically surrounding yourself or hacking your environment to be able to engage in low level physical activity all day long. Yeah. And I then mean, you get to the smart. point. Yeah, you get to the point then where, well, let's say that because of your lifestyle, Maybe you're not even able to do much of that. And so you have to compress a lot of physical movement into a short period of time. So now we start to cross the boundary to stress on the human body that really mostly only, you know, in traditional times, like the athletes or the Olympians would have really had the pressure to do. But now a lot of the general population is doing because we're sitting on our asses eight hours a day, you know, and, and these would be like the CrossFit wads and, you know, the brief spurts of high intensity interval training. And that, that kind of stuff is a good way to get fit quickly. We know it's a little bit more conducive to longevity than, than chronic cardio or, well, yeah, well, than chronic cardio, basically. In, in a scenario like that, you know, program for longevity, I have an article on my website called How to Look Good Naked and Live a Long Time. And it's like, well, there's a few just key things that you focus on each week. You subject your body to very slow, heavy, intense movement, something like Doug McGuff's Body by Science type of protocol you know, one to two times a week, five full body lifts that you're moving very slowly, like 30 seconds up, 30 seconds down, or even isometrically. And then you're doing something explosive uh, to develop like that wiry type 2B type of muscle fiber contraction and to maintain some amount of athleticism and functional fitness. And so that might be something like the, the seven minute New York Times workout, right? Where you got 14 exercises, 30 seconds on, 10 seconds off, right. boom, 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 quick, explosive, less heavy. Uh, and then you would have some form of stamina training, which might be a long weekend hike that ideally you do in a fasted state. So it's stamina that's teaching you how to burn fat as a fuel. Right. And then you'd have some type of mobility training, right? Maybe like 10 to 15 minutes each day when you wake up. Part of your morning routine, you know, like mine, is a little bit of yoga and a little bit of foam rolling and, you know, not, a, not necessarily the same thing each day, but kind of listening to your body and seeing what needs to be stretched or what needs to, you know, a little bit of love from the lacrosse ball. And then you'd want to train your mitochondrial density. Example of that would be, you know, four extremely hard 30-second efforts with four-minute recoveries. And you'd want to train your VO2 max, which might be four four-minute efforts with four-minute recoveries. And then you'd want to train your lactic acid tolerance, which would be like uh, Tabata set, right? like 20 seconds on, 
10 seconds off for four minutes. And you're weaving each of these into a typical week for an ideal longevity program. You're weaving uh, super slow training, explosive training, stamina training, lactic acid tolerance training, mitochondrial density training, VO2 max training, and mobility into any given week. And uh, you can actually accomplish everything that I just described with about anywhere from 40 to 60 minutes of time for yourself each day. And that would be an example of a longevity-based training program. Is it going to turn you into a super athlete? No. But what I just described would actually allow you to, to jump into quite a few activities and, and do do pretty well with them. It's more um, it's more intentional than most people treat their lives, right? Like I think I think right. the beauty of it is that I think most people have that activation energy where it's like I gotta go to the gym and it's gotta be like an hour, ninety minute, you know, big investment. And I think what I think what you espouse and I think is is brilliant is that hey, like doesn't need to be such a high activation energy, right? If you have five minutes you know, do 20 push-ups, do some kettlebells, right. right? It's like, can you incorporate this as a part of just daily lifestyle where it's not like, right. you know, a huge, like, commitment. It's like, yeah, be active. Right. I think that's the beauty yeah, of it. And, and we know from a longevity standpoint, once you exceed about 60 minutes per day of intense exercise or 90 minutes per day of chronic cardio and aerobic exercise, you actually begin to see a, a decreased rate of return and a no, no increase in your, uh, in, or, or no, no decrease in, in your mortality risk. So, right. you know, and there's a lot of fascinating research out there by guys like, uh, Dr. James O'Keefe, for example, on arterial stiffness and potential for calcification and folks who are excessively exercising, especially excessively exercising with, uh, you know, that marathon esque type of intensity. But yeah, ultimately from a longevity standpoint, I would say, you know, if I, if I could, if I could put people in any scenario, it would be you're outside, you're in extremes of temperature, you're working with your hands, you're moving, and you're occasionally getting your heart rate elevated. And that's a, that's a pretty good program. Next best would be like using the type of structure that I just described to you uh, to kind of like stack all that stuff throughout the week because you have some kind of an office job where you got to like, you know, do a lot more of more in the gym to, right. to stay active because maybe you you aren't even able to have like a you know standing workstation or a treadmill workstation or whatever, and you're just relegating to, to sitting for long periods of time. Or maybe right. you're like a pilot, or you know somebody has to sit for a long time. Um, yeah, but the worst scenario would just be to like you know hour long lunchtime run, uh, you know lift weights when you get home at night. Like uh, yeah, there's there's a there's a lot we could delve into when it yeah. comes to the issues with most of the exercise programs out there, creating more inflammation and, and decreasing longevity more than increasing it. Right. I think at least just do something I think is, uh, and, and it doesn't have to be too crazy. I mean, I think all of us listening to you, it's like, okay, like, okay, I could be a little bit more thoughtful in, in incorporating some of these approaches or techniques. I think we yeah, can all you just have a about, purpose. It's yeah. like, it's like when you want to chop down a tree effectively, you spend, you know, a lot of time sharpening your ax before you go chop the tree. When I'm chopping wood outside, right? Like I'll spend 20 seconds looking at the block of wood preparing for the swing, and then finally delivering in one blow the axe swing that splits the wood. And back in the day, I, I would just kind of like grab the axe and start hacking at the wham, wood. Wham, wham, yeah. And then I, yeah, and then I realized, no, my, my blade is sharp, and I know exactly what I'm going to do. I focus, and then I go for quality over quantity. It's extremely efficient. It's the same with the workout. Yeah. Know the purpose of the workout. Have a plan when you walk in. Don't just go to the gym and start looking around at which machine you're going to lift first. And yeah, I mean, if you if you have a purpose and an intention and a meaning behind each of the movements that you do, if you are going to be a gym or a health club person, 
then uh, that's ideal. Yeah. No, I think and that's... the way that I the way that I do that. Sorry, the way I do it practically, by the way, is for me. I have in an Evernote document that I look at on Sunday night that has the general intention of each day's workout written down on it. And then what I do is in the morning uh, before that day's workout, I write down the workout. And my only rule is it must be simple enough to fit on one of these little yellow post-it notes like this, right? Because yeah. I don't use my phone or anything at the gym. But if I can have a post-it note in my pocket or just stuck on the wall or whatever, and it's a simple enough workout to be in a post-it note, I know I won't have a lot of decision-making fatigue. Yep. But I've also sharpened my axe because I know exactly what I'm going to do. And I know the purpose physiologically behind it. Awesome. And then, you know, I think I think those are all actionable tidbits for our listeners here. Uh, I want to transition into, you know, big Ben goals for 2018. Um, I know you mentioned you have a couple experiments lined up. You know, what are you most excited about testing out personal goals, business goals? You know, what can we watch out in, from Ben in, in, in this in this year? Uh, in 2019, I'm primarily working on a book okay. that addresses a, a little bit of what we just talked about. But um, the... So the, I'm working on the on the title of the book because I've gotten a little bit of of um, a little bit of blowback from it from from publishers and editors, but it's essentially how to look good naked, live a long time, and be happy forever. It's a it's a guide to achieving really good levels of aesthetic appearance while at the same time maximizing longevity and also focusing on what is the most important thing really, uh, your spirituality, your soul, which is going to be around for a lot. A lot of time after your after your body has kicked the can, right. and so it delves into everything from you know the longevity based workouts that I just described, to um to to beauty principles and symmetry principles and anti aging principles you know including things like stem cells, and then also concepts of gratitude and love and even like frequencies and emotions and chakras and how those are all uh, very much intertwined to uh, achieving a complete experience as a human being. And so the idea is that it's, uh, it's, it's 30 chapters that uh, each tackle a specific component of body, of mind, and of spirit so that you can actually use that as a manual to really be a complete human. So I'm spending quite a bit of time on that book in 2018, uh, continue to work on my fiction in 2018. I just published my first work of fiction and uh, started starting into book two of that series. And then I've got a lot of uh, a lot of new formulations that I'm working on developing uh, for uh, supplementation. Um, I'm both advising some other companies in terms of like uh, supplement design and supplement formulation, and also working on some of my own formulations. Uh, that's still a, a realm that I love to play in is food and nutrition, and so uh, so yeah, doing that too. And then just being there for my for my two nine year old boys and my wife and. Uh, and um, spending lots of time with the family out here, uh, as you say, in the wilderness. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben. Well, I'd love to hear how all those projects you know, pan out. Yeah, and, and I'd love to, uh, love to come see what you guys are doing next time I'm, I'm down in, in uh, San Francisco.